Welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman. Okay, everybody, welcome to the Behavior Speaks podcast. Today, I'm pretty excited to have uh, Landa Fox here on the podcast with me. Hey, Landa. Hi, Ben. For those who don't know Landa, and I can't figure out if there's anybody out there that doesn't, uh, but uh, I'll read her bio. Uh, Landa Fox is a BCBA and a certified sexual health educator living in the Lekwungen Territory, which is uh, Victoria, BC. Her work focuses on sexual health and relationship education for those with unique learning needs. She works with schools, families, and individuals to create and modify existing sexual health and relationship education to be meaningful to those it is being presented to. She also works to create behavior support plans to address inappropriate sexual or sexualized behaviors. She trains teachers, staff, and communities about sexual health development, focusing on making sexual health education inclusive and accessible to all. Her areas of special interest within the area of sexual health education include how to promote a culture of consent and body autonomy within autism intervention, appropriate access to sex toys for people with disabilities, and generally educating people about everyone's right to knowledge and pleasure. That's super awesome. So again, uh, super cool to have you here. You know, I think this, this conversation can go, you know, a thousand different ways. Um, and uh, I think any of them will be fun. I happened upon uh, these, there's a sexual behavior research and practice special interest group that some folks may be familiar with. Those that aren't, it's an amazing resource. Um, it's sort of a ABAI kind of uh, special interest group, I guess. And uh, they've got a, a Facebook group with, you know, a ton of folks in it. And it's really the place to go when, when you have questions. And there's only eight people listed on the page is actually having kind of expertise in the area. So it's, it's an amazing, it's amazing that a, an area is so important and so, you know, basic needs kind of related um, has so, so few uh, experts. Um, um, and, and so we're, we're very lucky to have a Canadian and not just a Canadian, but a, a local BC person uh, as one on that list. And so I was super excited when Landa um, agreed to come on the podcast and hopefully we can share some good stuff. So Landa, maybe we could just start by uh, talking about kind of, you know, your story about how you got into the field and how that led to, you know, specializing in, in, in sexual behavior. Yeah, for sure. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the invite. Always happy to talk about sexuality with uh, anybody, particularly when it comes to the merging of the two fields. So yeah, uh, excited to be here. Uh, Yeah, my background, if you ask anybody who knew me in sort of middle school, high school, um, they probably would tell you that they thought I was going to be a sex therapist of some kind. The only model that I had for that, and the Canadian listeners um, will know, and, and maybe some international listeners as well, is Sue Johansson and the Sunday Night Sex Show. Of and I course. just did it. I know, right? And I just didn't know how to become her. And I was sort of like, well, she's she's her, and she's got that market cornered. And and so I sort of like fell away from that path a little bit and stumbled like fully on accident into the field of autism intervention, uh, early autism intervention. When I was doing my undergrad, I was in a co-op stream and I needed a co-op work placement. And my co-op advisor was like, you should try this job working with 
autistic kids. And I was like, I don't know. I don't like, I don't know if that interests me. Like, what is that even about? And, um, but I applied and I got it and I just loved a, the children and B the science and the merging of like what you can play with children for a living and have it still be science. And I was thrilled. And then, so I did that work for, I always say sort of like 10 years, but then, you know, the older that you get and you reflect back like time, just how does time work? And so probably, probably between 10 and 15 years, I worked in, in autism intervention and, you know, worked with a lot of younger kids just because, you know, resources go where the money flows. But I, I always liked working with older youth and teens and, and young adults as well. And, and I started to see over the years that there was this gap in this area that I had loved and, and wanted to learn about when I was younger around sexuality and the people that I was working with now. And we weren't talking about these things. And I, I sort of just had like a career life shakeup. And I was like, okay, should I just leave the field of ABA and just jump into a career in sexual health education. And then I was like, wait a minute, why don't you just put those two things together? And at that time, I didn't really have a good template either for what that would look like, or is there anybody else in the field that's doing this work? I attended ABAI, I can't even remember where it was, and found the Sexual Behavior Research and Practice Special Interest Group years ago when uh, August Stockwell was the president. And I had sort of like vaguely connected with the group then. And yeah, just sort of was like, that's it. I'm going to just put these passions together. And so I started pursuing my sexual health educator certification. And in Canada, that is offered through uh, one agency, um, which is Options for Sexual Health in Vancouver. So um, I did a, a six month course with them and you do an exam and a practicum and all of that um, and became a sexual health educator. So now I've just shifted my practice to focus on the merging of those two areas. And then as you sort of start to specialize, you sort of realize that the more that you know about something, the more you know that you don't know. So then even within the area of sexual health, there's so many areas that you can sort of sub-specialize in. And so even the, as you mentioned, the special interest group of ABAI on our Facebook page and our website, we have that uh, referral list that you mentioned previously. And even within that, we've got, you know, I think there's 10 or 12 different subcategories that there's different people that specialize in different things. Any, everything from, you know, gender diversity to kink and BDSM to reproduction to how to discuss with families. And there's different people that specialize in those different areas. So there's still lots for me to learn. There's still lots for the field to learn, but I'm just excited to be kind of embedded within this area. Oh, awesome. A hundred percent. I, yeah, I just uh, opened up that referral form or referral uh, list uh, today myself. And there's actually 18 uh, sub sub specialties in this list. It's uh, it's mind blowing. Like, I mean, when I think of sort of sexual health, obviously there's sort of the standard and I don't even know what that, if that's even the, the right term, but there's, there's, you know, school sex education, you know, that seems to be a realm. And then there's maybe a little bit on um, the dating and that sort of thing kind of relationship skills. I've been hearing more about consent, which I think is really important, of course. And then masturbation seems to be the other thing. You know, uh, you know I have a kid who's masturbating in, in the living room. What do I do? You know, or on the school bus, what do I do? But there's all these other areas like, uh, and it shows kind of who specializes in them. And I'm just going to read some of the ones that uh, your name is listed under that, you know, folks might not even think to even 
think that there's even, uh, you know, uh, things you can address. So yeah. um, um, just good old pleasure skills um, as, as you know, we, we talk about leisure skills all the time, but uh, pleasure skills. I mean, that's, that's awesome. Uh, religious, spiritual and cultural factors, uh, racial factors, sex toys, lube and sex tools, which I know you, you specialize in and we're going to yep. talk, talk on some more legal issues and, and sexual harm, substance use and sex. Like these are just things that I, I mean, it, it, it certainly makes sense that they could all be connected. And I suppose I think an important piece is I know in your in your bio you focus you talked about kind of focusing on those kinds of issues in autism spectrum disorders. But I would guess that you and everyone in this uh, research practice uh, group works well beyond folks with autism, right? Yeah, yeah, and I think that's a, like a good place to start the conversation. And I know lots of folks that are kind of in these two realms. Like we. Um, have talking a lot about lately the kind of the difference between a scope of practice and a scope of competence and that, you know, if you kind of picture your traditional Venn diagram meme, um, mm-hmm. you've got these two circles that are coming together in the middle. And so mm-hmm. obviously as behavior analysts, we know that like addressing behavior is something that we can do, right? That's mm-hmm. in our scope and sexual behavior is, you know, it's a behavior. It's something mm-hmm. that, that people are engaging in. So is it within the scope of practice of behavior analysts? For sure. But is it in the scope of competence of every behavior analyst? No, right? So everybody that's um, doing work in both of these areas that is, you know, sort of either listed on that referral list or hopefully other people are doing their own education and the people on that list may not be exhaustive, but we've tried to sort of search for folks that have pursued certification or, or have extensive experience in both areas that the scope of competence really requires that you do continuing education in the field of human sexuality. So we're doing continuing education as behavior analysts, but we're also, you know, I'm doing continuing education in the realm of just human sexuality. So taking webinars and, well, everything's a webinar right now, but (laughs) um, taking, you know, taking webinars about just general sexual health education, how to, you know, fuse um, sexual health education within a social justice framework using um, sex education as a vehicle to sort of move social justice issues forward. Um, They really are linked. How can we address, you know, issues of systemic racism and the history of racism and sexuality together. And those are all things that, you know, we have to bring all of those together in terms of knowing about sexuality. Because if we're just treating sexuality or sexual health behaviors as behaviors, but without knowing the details around human sexuality, there is an increased risk of harm, mm-hmm. um, be that like physical harm, just like harm to the client, putting the client in a dangerous situation, putting people that are supporting the client into dangerous or unsafe situations. So you really have to have training in both of those areas to be able to be competent. And we, there's a few of us and we want to make ourselves available as much as possible to have people be able to access good quality information and good quality resources. I mean, the internet is wonderful, um, but it is, you know, getting sexual health information online. If you don't know what you're looking for, you don't know what's accurate can be really tough. So even the best intentioned behavior analyst, just like looking through um, like online or looking through even research, even some of the research within the field of applied behavior analysis and things related to sexuality, you know, is misclassifying things like fetishes, 
Um, we've seen mm. recently with the um, move to advocate for a full retraction of harmful research around gender nonconforming behaviors um, mm-hmm. in the Rutgers and Lovas study that's um, just recently um, had that sort of like editorial note released. So yep. even contacting the literature doesn't really give you the critical thinking skills around some of these issues that further training in the area of human sexuality would do. So really just, you know, my sort of big message is just really think critically about what you're good at and what you know about. Um, obviously, you know, human sexuality is an experience that we all have. And so I think people might equate their own personal experiences with some sort of level of expertise. Mm-hmm. Whereas like if you wouldn't have that, if you thought like I'm a behavior analyst, okay. And with is addressing severe self-injurious behavior within the scope of behavior analysis. Yes. Do I have competence in that? No. So I wouldn't address those, mm-hmm. you know, I wouldn't accept that person as a client. I wouldn't accept a client with like severe food refusal behavior. That's not within my scope of competence, even though it is something that behavior analysts do. That's awesome. Uh, and, and I think, and you bring up a good point that now actually becoming, and I'm very happy, a theme in in in, uh, in the podcasts even that I've been doing. Uh, you know, I, I interviewed uh, Alexia Stack, and we talked a lot about trauma and how she's you know contacting research in you know a bunch of different areas, social work and the like. Uh, you know, I talked to Hillary McClinton about kind of supervision and 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 mentorship and a little bit on on kind of sleep and whatnot and how they have to contact kind of research and you know, different areas, which I think is, is super important. I think that's something that some of the old school folks might might say they've always been doing this, but it, it seems like for the longest time, you know, we only looked at Java. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and that's where we kind of got all our information. Eventually we got it, you know, and sure we got a few other like journals, you know, behavioral disorders and, and a few other ones like that, but they're all, you know, kind of same, same thing, different pile, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. um, uh, and sort of the idea that, you know, behavior is within our, our scope. And so we can address kind of anything we want and mm. other, other research from other areas, you know, just isn't all that important and sort of been the vibe, but that seems to have changed a lot in the last couple of years, which I think is amazing uh, around sort of, contacting research in, in other areas. And so where, where, where do you kind of go to get your information that's sort of outside of ABA? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's the, yeah, that's so important. I remember the, like, you know, early in my career getting that message of like, we're behavior analysts and everything's behavior. We can do anything. It's just like, Oh, that's just not, you know, a helpful mindset. Yeah. I mean, Oh, like what? So the scientific the society for the scientific study of sexuality has a conference coming up next week so that's um like a resource there's just even like sexual health like resource websites one of my favorite ones to go to is a website called scarletine it's just good quality sexual health education information on that's available online in like an accessible format to sort of like um, tweens, teens, youth, but like I go there all the time just like for general information. And I, I think the idea of like, like you said, journals and, and contacting like, you know, okay, yeah, we get Jabba. I mean, we've got the issue of like paywalls and all of this sort of mm-hmm. preventing us from accessing, you know, research in different fields. If we don't have, if we don't have access via, uh, you know, being associated with an academic institution or, you know, we all as behavior analysts have access to Jabba through, the BACB portal, Mm -hmm. but there are other journals that are important to sort of, you know, reach out and, and, uh, contact. And, and I think it is important to sort of, 
yes, journals and subscriptions can be expensive, but it's part of the continuing education mandate mm-hmm. that we have, I think, as behavior analysts. So, you know, can you get a subscription to everything? No. Should we try to get a subscription to a few things? Probably. I mean, there's lots of privilege in that statement that, that I recognize mm, as well. 100%. But you know, you know, I think there's a bigger issue in terms of the access to information. And it's sort of yeah. like, you know, oh, I published this research in this academic journal and I don't understand why people aren't doing this thing that I, you know, have discovered, you know, is important. It's like, well, because nobody can read it. They can only <laughs> read the yeah. accessible like news blip that's put, yeah. you know, online for free that doesn't describe the methods that we, that, you know, now we can't do it with replicable precision. Like there's all kinds of issues, but um, like a few of the journals that I contact, the Sex and Disability is one that I have a subscription to mm. that I read frequently. They have a mix mm. of disabilities, you know, that they have research published on. So that could be something from like physical disability or like a spinal cord injury CP. But there is there's journal um, articles in there quite often that focus on intellectual or developmental disabilities. Um, the American Journal of Sexuality Education is another one. So that focuses more on like actual educational mm. um, issues and challenges. Um, there's the Canadian Journal of Human Sexuality, the Journal of Sex Research. And, and one thing that I do for that is just even subscribing to like journal alerts. So in my email, I get like, you know, weekly, daily, sometimes too frequently to interrupts my day. And it just at least gives you like the abstract access to the abstract. And you can see how you can try to access that journal. And I have had like a near 100% success rate of emailing authors of articles and saying like, hey, I, you know, teach this area, sex education, working with, you know, autistic individuals. And um, would it be possible to get a copy of your article? And, you know, 100% of the time when I've reached out, people have been really responsive with that. So you just have to be willing to sort of like put in that little bit of extra effort, which I think is, you know, in the age of really fast emails and is, is pretty easy to do. So yeah, there's a really great conference coming up called SLAM, Sexuality, Le- Sexuality Leaders and Movers. Mm. And it's a sexuality um, not related to ABA or, or disability, but um, it's put on and all of the speakers are all um, people of color. So really looking at sort of those intersections, again, of like social justice and sexuality. So there's lots of stuff out there. Um you know, I think like we'll just send a bunch of people to the ABAI special interest group. If people are on Facebook, that is the like we're constantly putting things up there when we see conferences mm-hmm. and stuff come up. There's webinars pretty frequently. So like I did one uh, on just on Wednesday. I know the president um, has one coming up. And so that just, you know, frequently different things are popping up different places. And so it does take some work to sort of find them. But we're doing our best to to sort of put those in one central location on the the sexual behavior um, special interest group uh, Facebook uh, that's page. Amazing. Yeah. You know, I just I, I realized I, I missed a page uh, uh, subspecialty. So there's ah. actually there's actually <laughs> up to like 25 now. Um, yeah. uh, I, I found the page with the kink BDSM polyamory. Uh, you know, all, all I think of that is uh, bountiful BC. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But so much more. Yeah. Different so, relationship structures. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. So we've got some folks that specialize in that for sure. So cool. One thing uh, promoting that kind of culture of consent and but body autonomy and autism intervention. What, what, what do you mean by that? 
Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I think for me, and this is something that, you know, I, I've been, you know, intersected with a few other folks in the area and we've all been sort of thinking the same things. And, and so just as I started to move more into thinking about sexual health and, and obviously the topic of consent is, is huge, you know, just like in our culture and society, uh, right now and rightfully so that we're just starting to think a bit more critically about some of the things that um, we're doing or we might have historically been doing in, in autism intervention and for me it was sort of like oh I'm learning all these things about like body autonomy and consent and how to teach consent to even like young kids and then I was looking at like well what have I done in the past or what have what are some practices that I'm putting in place maybe even currently that just like are making me feel a bit like ugh, like icky about, you know, some of the things that I'm doing. And so really it's just about sort of like, we need to teach people how to say no. So we're getting into these situations just culturally or in society where we're seeing that people aren't just thinking about um, sexuality or, and the long-term impacts of like some of the things that we might be teaching folks, even when they're younger. So things like, I mean, the kind of classic, just like pop culture examples. I mean, we're coming up on the season now is the like, oh, isn't it funny? My kid's sitting on Santa's lap in the picture and they're screaming. And it's like, is it funny? Like you're forcing a child to do something that they're clearly sending you a message that they don't want to be doing. And so what would be a better way to do that? And so we think of like behavior analysts, like, could we like do some shaping of like Santa Claus lap sitting behavior or like, why is that even a life goal? <laughs> like, you know, like is sitting on Santa's lap for a picture one time a year, like a thing that we need to be moving towards, you know, what, it, you know, who is this really for? Can we, we can just stand by Santa. So Absolutely. Uh, for me, it's sort of like the idea of like, how can we teach people that they're the boss of their own body and that can start young so that when that person is older, they can learn how to say no I mean, the big sort of trigger for me with that was the, like, just some of the statistics, um, which there's, you know, various sources that, you know, quote different percentages and things like that. But folks with disabilities, uh, whether that be somebody who's autistic, somebody with an intellectual developmental disability of some other type, or a physical disability are at a greater likelihood, you know, up to seven times more likely to be sexually abused than somebody who might, we might say would be like typically developing. Mm. And so I was sort of like, well, what, like, why is that happening? And I mean, there's, you know, a, t- a ton of reasons that we can get into, but I think one of those is like, those people have people touching their bodies and moving their bodies and doing things to their bodies and have had basically any time that they've said no has been extinguished yep. really from a behavioral perspective. So if we extinguish somebody's ability to say no across the entirety of their childhood, and then all of a sudden when they're an adult, we're expecting them to be able to say no when somebody tries to touch them in a way mm-hmm. that they don't like. And that could be something from like a hug, um, like all the way to like actual like genital touching. Mm-hmm. And so what could we be doing in practices? And, and obviously like my background is a lot in early autism intervention, and I still mm-hmm. do some work mostly via supervision of like aspiring behavior analysts at this point, um, what can we do in early intervention programs that would foster that skill and that ability and having kids be like in control of their bodies. And so one of the things is basically, and like I do this as like a standard practice now, and I encourage all my supervisees to do it is if you've got a bunch of programs that you're running, one of the programs should be the child's no gets reinforced. 
So, you know, maybe I have a line and I've got like, we're going to do, you know, this many tacts, we're going to do this many listener receptive, and you're going to do in the session this many you respect the child's no. And the interventionist just like checks it off. Like, yes, they're doing it. So that sometimes when their no is respected or is when they say a no, it's respected, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and that doesn't have to be every single time, you know, people are sort of like, well, you know, we have to change their diaper. It's like, well, yeah, you, yeah, that's a health and safety issue too. It's not, it's not every time we all have to get used to our no, not being respected, but for the most part, most of us have our no respected way more often than some of the little people um, or even not so little people that we're supporting. If you're collecting continuing education credits for this podcast episode, you'll need to know the three secret words. The first secret word is penis. Mm-hmm. And I mean, even with the, even with the diaper example, I mean, you, you, you have to change it now. We could change right. it in three minutes. You know, I mean, uh, you don't have to change it immediately. And as soon as they say no, well, yeah. okay, let's take a break and come back yeah. to it, you know. For sure. Yeah. yeah. Right. Embedding, some, embedding some choices in there for sure. Definitely. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's one thing that I've sort of put in, or even just like, you know, when we think about from ABA and, and early autism intervention in particular, those sort of like prompting hierarchies. So, mm-hmm. you know, what do we, what does our prompting hierarchy look like? Are we using full physical prompting as our first level of prompt, just like regardless, regardless of whether that's necessary for the learner, are we really doing like a good analysis of what level of prompting is needed? Why do we have to put in physical prompting? Could we use shaping for this skill instead that doesn't require physical prompting? And sort of, I think just thinking more critically about like, what is the thing that we're teaching? Why are we using physical prompting? How necessary is this? And that's not to say that that might not be needed all of the time, but you can also just think of, you know, what does assent withdrawal look like on the part of the client? So if you're doing a, you know, classic example of like, you know, doing an inset puzzle to sort of like try to teach that sort of leisure skill or like pre-academic skill to like a a really little person, then, you know, if you're doing hand over hand to help them put the pieces in, you know, are they giving you signs with their body that they're fine with that, right? But if they start to resist, that's them withdrawing their assent from you touching them. And so we can respect that for the learner. Do we have to be doing that puzzle right now? No. Is there something else that we could be doing? Probably. And so really paying attention to some of those ways that we interact with students, because if we're touching them, and then I see often it's like, but then when they touch us, then somehow that's like not okay. We're telling right. them no hands, hands down. But like how many times a day, if we were to take some data, uh, and I haven't done this, but I probably should, is like, how often are you touching them? And we're saying like, that's okay. And then how often are they touching you? And we're saying, that's not okay. Right. Yeah. Um, fair enough. Just, yeah. And I, so a, a lot of it is just really, for me, is just encouraging people to not entirely change their practice, you know, starting tomorrow, but just to develop those critical thinking skills and then change your practice. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and and a, and a, a lot of this makes me think about sort of my experiences before I kind of got into ABA, where I was working as a group home manager and working kind of residential care in different settings uh, with with adults with kind of autism, but also a lot of severe intellectual disabilities. 
And the behaviors that we're seeing are, are exactly kind of what you're talking about as far as, you know, not being taught any of this stuff as, as young folks. So, you know, I worked with one fella and it was actually quite hilarious. Uh, clearly he had been, you know, subjected to some sort of early intervention uh, because he would come up to me on a regular basis and he would grab my wrists and make me clap my hands. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> and laugh his head off at me. Like and he's like 25. And right. actually clearly he's had that done to him over and over and over and over again. Um, yeah. And but this then, is and but this is how in his mind, like this is how people interact. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Because this is what this is this is a thing that we do back and forth. Yeah. I make you do a thing, you make me do a thing. Yep, 100 percent And then another fellow who uh uh and, and this is sort of more where things get dangerous is of course. Uh, you know, all these guys are, you know, adults and, and willing to on a dime, take off their clothes at staff demand, you know? Yeah. Okay. Close off. And immediately they're naked. Yeah. Uh, and, and nobody sort of looked at that as being, even I didn't really look at that as being strange at the time. A problem. Yeah. Um, but realizing now that, you know, um, that that could happen anywhere um, um, yeah. or, or, you know, and they go, go out into public or, 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 you know, they go to the mall and, and other behaviors like using urinals and dropping their pants to their ankles and alone. Um, there's just so many sort of examples I, I can think of, of, uh, of adults who weren't taught any of those things. Um, yeah. And, that, and yeah. that wasn't a standard part of early intervention, but they were taught clap hands. Yeah. <laughs> right. And I mean, we, I think maybe just in general, we need to spend more time thinking about the what we're doing at one point at point A and what is that going to mean for that person when they get to point L, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we're just kind of like teaching things according to like a, a manual or, you know, steps that we learned when we were being trained or or whatever. And, mm-hmm. and we're not thinking critically about what that means. I mean, a few things kind of come to mind with the examples that you that you gave me. One is that we know that staff turnover, you know, in this field is high. And so the people have a variety of different, you know, caregivers or, or people that are sort of, you know, responsible for, for assisting them in some way coming in and out. And so they, they do have, if they're just told to take their clothes off by a revolving door of people, and they just learn that, like, if someone tells you that you have to take your clothes off and you do it, then the revolving door of people could be anybody, right? That could be somebody that is intending to cause them harm, as opposed to somebody who that might not be their intention, but the unforeseen or not thought of consequences that it's 100%. Harmful. And the other one with like the hands clapping and like those sorts of things, like those body boundaries. And like, I talk about this often when I'm in the front of like any presentation that I'm doing to a group is this idea of the spectrum of sexuality. And on one end we have, you know, people being seen as asexual and on the other Mm -hmm. end, hypersexual and people with disabilities are usually slotted into one of those columns by society at large. And there's this whole part of this, that spectrum in the middle. And, you know, the spectrum could be like a 3d ball kind of thing Mm -hmm. if we really think about it, but there's this whole area in the middle that most people are going to fall in, right? If you think of your traditional, you know, curve, um, for any behavior, um, there's going to be people at either end. Yes. But the majority of people are going to fall in the middle. But if we see those people as like asexual and we see the, the people that we're supporting as asexual, then we think like, oh, they're childlike. They don't need this information. They need to be protected. And and I see this manifesting in like, you know, people hugging caretakers, um, like staff members, interventionists, therapists, whoever, like up until they're, you know, an age when that wouldn't be expected of a typical child or, mm-hmm. you know, they're, we're using like 
the, that sort of physical contact. Um, and we're not teaching them boundaries. And so they're, you know, hugging an education assistant or hugging a therapist or sitting on a therapist's lap, you know, for an extended period of time to like, oh, we need them to sit on their lap so that they stay at the circle time or whatever. It's like, well, that's all well and cute until that person is 12 and gets an erection. And now all of a sudden it's a problem, but you didn't do anything between ages zero and 12 to teach them about body boundaries. And, you know, if we're infantilizing people, we're at risk of putting them into potentially dangerous situations, um, both for themselves um, to be harmed or for them to be labeled as a harmful person, right? Totally, totally. Yeah, that's, I, I, I think of a few examples where, you know, we suddenly see these, a, a new behavior emerge because, so like a, a common one I've been seeing a lot lately is a, a teenager or a young adult and a female staff and there's lots of that like you said there's they, they hug they hang out they do they're they're close and then one day the guy's hand uh you know the the, the client's hand gets a little too close you know moves up the leg a little right. too far right um and immediately the whole dynamic of the house changes and now we've got mm-hmm. you know like you said hypersexualized behavior uh, what's happening? He's going to become a rapist. Um, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And we can't let him. We can't let him around females anymore. You know, we can't let him out in the community anymore because you know he did yeah. that thing. And we make all these sorts of assumptions that the 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 goal there was you know you know that it wasn't that it even wasn't because we have, we never taught that kid anything. Yeah. And I see that definitely like people, that spectrum that I was talking about from asexual to hypersexual, people will be in that asexual column. And then all of a sudden something happens and people make this giant leap across the middle to hypersexual and forgot about everything in the center. I mean, there's a few things there that like, you know, I see that as somebody who, you know, does work in the area of assessment and, and treatment planning for inappropriate sexual behaviors is that like often I will get consultations or referrals. And when you start to ask the right kinds of questions, you realize that the, the behavior isn't sexual at all. It has maybe a sexual topography, but not necessarily mm. a sexual function. Mm-hmm. And so you really need to be skilled at both functional assessment and understanding of sexual behaviors and the typical development of sexual behaviors. So, I mean, kind of circling back to our conversation about looking outside of, you know, the area, I think this is another area where behavior analyst training is, is lacking where we don't necessarily have, unless we've decided, you know, on our own as trainees to, to look at human development courses. And so are we taking development courses in language? No. Are we taking development courses in, you know, finding gross motor skills? No. So what do we do in those cases? If we don't know, we ask an SLP or an OT. And do we take courses in the development of human sexuality? No, like probably most of us not, right? And so what should we do in that case? We should reach out to somebody that has expertise in the development of human sexuality. And so some people will sort of say like, well, is it really that important to go through, you know, half hour of this workshop was based on this backgrounder of, of human sexuality development. But if you don't know what's typical for somebody at a certain age, mm-hmm. then you don't know what, you know, might be concerning. Yeah. That's, that's important to, to know and understand as well. And, and a lot of that stuff is just curiosity. And this is where I see again, that referral is often unfortunately reactive. Something's happened. Someone calls me. And then when I look at like, what do I need to do in terms of, you know, our kind of traditional columns of prevention, teaching and responding, well, the teaching is like, 
they don't know about private body parts. They don't know that somebody's butt isn't something that you should touch. Mm-hmm. They have never been t- told about breasts or, you know, breasts haven't been labeled for right. them. They don't know that that's a body part that um, shouldn't be touched. You know, if we don't discriminate between the differences between a breast and a hand, sure. you know, what exactly. do you touch and what do you not touch? Yeah. We pick up those things, you know, maybe naturally in our environment, but some of the people that we're supporting you know, might not. And we're, we're good at saying that about some other behaviors, you know, oh, they need to be taught the labels for whatever X, Y, Z foods or, you know, leisure items that they might be interested in or clothing, but they're not taught the body parts. So that's another sort of body autonomy consent sort of thing, or just early intervention teaching is like advocating for body parts to be taught. Um, It makes me, it makes me think about kind of you know, so sexuality in and of itself has been a pretty taboo topic. I mean, there's there's lots of th- there's things in that list, you know, that I think that you know mm-hmm. a lot of people wouldn't talk about with anybody. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, uh, you know, even maybe their own partners. And so, kind of a two parts here. There's I don't even know how this goes. So you've got this sort of one part where you've got these folks with developmental disabilities, or just you know, or or or, or just folks with la- a lack of education. I don't even have to have a developmental disability, but don't know that, like you said, you know, the vagina and the elbow are, are not the same thing, you know, right. um, and touching an elbow and touching a vagina have completely different, uh, you know, effects on people. Mm-hmm. And so they don't know that all that, and then there's a whole sort of air, you know, world, there's a whole world of, of taboo and, and boundaries that we've kind of been taught by society, you know, that these folks have never learned. But then there's also that the, the issue of, all that taboo. I don't know if taboo is the right word, but where parents, you know, parents are, are will, will, will happily say, I, I need an SLP or an OT. Mm. But I don't know that everyone, every parent will jump to, I need a sexual health educator. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and, and so how do you get around that barrier? Because I mean, that's sort of, I think that's a big issue. Well, it should be my job to talk to my kids, you know, mm. but then there's mm-hmm. also the, my kid's asexual or hypersexual sort of thing. Yeah. Um, I have thoughts about that for sure. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I agree with you in like in terms of taboo and not discussed. And I do like an activity often, especially if I'm leading a workshop. And you know, if I can't say penis or vulva or nipples or anus with you know some level of confidence, and just you know, those are just those are just other body parts. Those are just right. scientific words. Sure. And so I get people to like label a picture, like a diagram Mm. of a vulva. And like, this is the urethra. This is the vagina. This is the clitoris. If you can't say those things, you can't teach them to other people in a way that, you know, breeds confidence. Um, An example that I, that I usually say is, you know, the classic like head and shoulders, knees and toes song that like labels all of the key body parts, but it Mm -hmm. totally skips over the entire torso. Like we just won't mention. It totally does, doesn't it? Yeah. Right. So you can, I've like rewritten it a few times to involve like a a verse that is like nipples and buttocks. Um, That's awesome. But yeah, so it, you know, it's just, we definitely need to get more comfortable as a culture. I see subtle shifts happening in that direction Mm -hmm. for sure. But yeah, if you can't talk about it, then you can't teach somebody else. And even like, you know, something for some of the the folks that listeners might be supporting is, you know, users of AAC devices, you know, penis, buttocks, vulva, vagina, breasts, those aren't like 
if you select to open the like body parts tab, those usually aren't like pre-populated on there. Mm-hmm. You have to like go through a few different boxes in like the back end to like open up the accessibility of those. But like those are body parts that people yep. should know about. So so advocating for that. I mean, people, you know, teachers or parents will suddenly say like, yeah, but then they'll just be pressing a penis button again and again and again. And like, oh, and it's like, you know, show me a two-year-old that hasn't yelled about butt or penis when they learn those words, right. like, and I'll give you a significant sum of money. Like when kids learn new words that have some sort of reaction from other folks in their environment, yeah. they're going to start saying them often. And so we can, we can manage that and figure out how to respond to that, but it doesn't mean that they shouldn't be allowed to say them. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it, just, it makes me think of a case that I had once where the kid was, you know, had a lot of echolalia and, and he learned the word penis and he would just go up to people and go penis and just wait for the reaction. And he just loved it, just lived off of it. Yeah. 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 Right. And so, I mean, I think, you know, from a behavior analyst perspective, we can see the function of that behavior pretty clearly. Right. Sure. But, and that's because, you know, in society, we don't use those words very often, but if we yeah. did, then it wouldn't be a big deal. And then we wouldn't, you know, so there's, there's lots of just like general societal yeah. work to do at, at that level, but yeah. yeah. And so that sort of circles back to like getting, you know, parents or, or honestly, like teacher, like anybody, right. Like not, not just parents, anybody that's working to support any human <laughs> um, to be able to talk about. Um, some of these things. That, and I agree that like, lo- there's so many things that lots of the people that we're working with need, you know, some extra support with, mm-hmm. and there's only so much time. And unfortunately, you know, tied to that is so much you know, funding or, or accessibility. And so sexual health education can kind of be sort of like, you know, the last thing on people's lists. It is something that if we look just like at data from Canada, like the majority of parents want their kids to learn sex education in schools, Mm -hmm. whether that's because they don't want to talk about it themselves at home, or they think that like, you know, school may be able to offer like better information. Um, We've, you know, we've got a a long way to go in terms of um, sex education in schools. Um, Obviously in Canada, we're further along than some other like international places when it comes to sex ed, but we're also behind some other places in terms of uh, sex education. So when parents are talking about, you know, I'll, I'll use parents kind of as the example, because usually, you know, they are part of who the client is for me, mm-hmm. it's the, mm-hmm. the child and then, and then their family who may be the decision maker for them. In British Columbia, I use the Ministry of Education, like learning standards that are very clearly talk about sexual health education from kindergarten, you know, through to um, the end of high school, there's very clear goals around what should be learned at different ages. And Mm. so it's kind of like, well, it's not me saying that your child should learn this. It's Mm. ministry of education saying that your child should learn this. I mean, I'm saying it too, but it's helpful to have like a government document to be like, look, this, I'm not just making up that your child should know their body parts. That's something that they're going to be learning in kindergarten. And all, you know, all the way up until, you know, later grades and learning about puberty, you know, it starts in like, like fourth, fifth, sixth grade, and, you know, puberty lessons, seventh, eighth grade is more around contraception and STIs, starting to look at like gender identity in those like later sort of like middle um, to high school, entering high school age ranges, mm-hmm. looking at consent, um, healthy relationship decision-making. Those are all really clearly outlined in the 
BC um, physical health education curriculum. So that's a reference that people can use to sort of advocate, um, you know, because parents will advocate, like, I want my child to be learning what their other peers are learning. They're learning how to write sentences. I want my kid to learn how to write sentences. Totally fair. Um, Your kids' peers are also learning, you know, to how babies are made. So that's something that your child should be learning, you know, in the second grade as well. Um, You know, different kinds of family structures, all of that. And we can put in stuff around like figuring out like, you know, how do queer families have children? Not everybody, Mm. um, you know, has some sort of like sexual intercourse to to have Mm -hmm. a baby. So those are, that's information that that kids are going to be learning in those early grades. And so your child has a right to access that information as well. So that, that's one way in, I think another route in is just, you know, I often have parents ask me like, I want him to be able to tell me, I want her to be able to tell me if she's feeling sad, if she's feeling happy, if Mm -hmm. she's feeling sick. And it's like, well, wouldn't you like your child to be able to tell you if their vulva was painful? You know, if they had a urinary tract infection, wouldn't it be good Mm. to be able to say like my vulva hurts? Mm. Um, And as well as like my stomach hurts and my head hurts and my ear hurts. So we can teach kids, you know, to label how their body is feeling and we should include genitals, you know, kids in early grades, especially kids in like preschool, kindergarten and kids that are at higher risk of putting things in their mouth, like can get things like pinworm and that can cause like anal itching. Um, And so Mm. if your kid can't say like my bum or like anus hurts or is itchy, then they can't tell you that they might have pinworm that might need to be treated by a doctor you know, and, and something like that can turn into then like a referral to me because their child is rectal digging or digging or like digging feces or pulling feces out. And then that leads to like eating feces or smearing feces. And at the end of the day, it's just that your kid had pinworm and their, wow. and their anus was itchy and they couldn't tell you. So health, you know, and like medical yeah. um, is another way in. Um, and then the, the third way in, which I don't like to, I like to use those other two first because I don't want to use a scare tactic for people, but mm-hmm. it is that like your child is at increased risk because of a disability mm-hmm. or a language barrier of being abused by somebody else. We, we know this from data and statistics. And so if something happens and your child is harmed by somebody, they can't tell you if they don't know yeah. to start the names of their body parts. If they don't know that sex includes touching somebody else's genitals or mouths and genitals coming together, if sex is just penis and vagina and something else that doesn't fit penis and vagina happens to a child, they don't know that they've been sexually assaulted or an adult for that matter, if they don't have that information. So by this narrow definition of sex, we're increasing the risk of harm to people because they can't identify something that's happened to them is sex. Mm. Cool. So it sounds like British Columbia is somewhat progressive, uh, maybe, maybe relative to the rest of the country, because you, you, you talk about the, the learning standards, which are, you know, those are quite more, a lot more, a lot more detail and, and, and around different areas than I would have thought, like things like gender diversity and whatnot being included. Mm-hmm. And then the fact, and then and I also, you also had mentioned that your, your credential is only offered in in, in BC? Yeah. I mean, there's lots of people that take that options um, for sexual health, sexual health educator certification from across the country. So the mm. cohort that I was in had people, there was six or seven of us and, you know, four of us were from sort of like BC, Vancouver Island, lower mainland, but there was a person from Ontario that came. Um, and there was also a person from 
California that came actually, um, cause they'd heard good things about the program. Yeah. So it's, it's one route. It's certainly available to lots of, of folks. I haven't looked to see what they're doing in terms of their offerings for, you know, during the pandemic, if they've sort mm-hmm. of changed, you know, how they're offering that, but it mm-hmm. is because it was an in-person course, you know, meant traveling for me, myself from Victoria to Vancouver, you know, on weekends to, to participate, um, in the teaching, but yeah, so it's, and, and that's sort of like one, one route, um, the ASECT certification in the state. So the American association of sexuality educators and counselors and therapists certifies people internationally as well. Oh, okay. You know, the term American is in there. Some American people like to think like, well, American means, you know, North American. <laughs> oh, and I was like, ah, I don't think that many Canadians would agree. <laughs> American means North American, but no. it is a, it is available for for international certification. So there's different places where people can get uh, additional, you know, continuing education. But yeah, like like I think BC is fairly progressive in terms of our sexuality education. I think it's still being implemented, you know, to varying degrees and standards across, you know, obviously different geographic regions. So, you know, here in Victoria, um, there's a team of educators at our local sexual health clinic, Island Sexual Health, and they are often hired by school districts to um, deliver sexual health curriculum. In the lower mainland, there's a number of different um, sexuality educators that offer the same sort of thing. So they will be contracted by a school to go in. Options um, has a an education team. Um, there's a few others for your lower mainland listening population. The second secret word is vulva. Um, there's an organization called Shift. Um, uh, Jesse Woolen and Salima Noon Educators is another one. So there's a few others, and they teach uh, sexual health education in in schools, um, and that's you know good for schools that they are recognizing that their physical health education teachers, you know, sort of thinking about like <laughs> classic like Mean Girls like um, scenario <laughs> or like or I think Big Mouth, you know, and they have like their their gym teachers teaching sexual health education. There's a stereotype of, of sort of like how that can go sideways. So a lot of schools do hire these outside professionals where this is their specialization. But what I found for the kids and the youth that I support is that that information is presented in a way that is might not be as accessible for them. It may be accessible for some, but not all. So what I find that I do is modify curriculum, modify how it's presented in order to make it accessible for the learners that I'm working with. And that could be one-on-one, that could be small group. Um, and they may need the information represented like a number of times. And so I might do some of that work one-on-one myself to sort of determine what's the best way to teach. And then I might share that information with families, like here's some resources here so you can help to support that at home. So yeah, we're, you know, we have a, a fairly inclusive, scientifically accurate sex education delivered in this province, but the standards I think would vary for sure. Right. So when it comes to sexual education, I think I think one area that a lot of us run into and a lot of us get asked questions about and a lot of us start to make recommendations on that may not be well-informed and may lead to problems is related to masturbation. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the common things that I've run into in the past and, 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 you know, certainly didn't know what to do with it was either, either there were, you know, folks that were engaging in behaviors that were like masturbation, 
um, but they weren't, it wasn't. So they didn't, they didn't know how to masturbate. Mm. Um, and so they're, you know, they're rubbing against things or they're, you know, doing things that potentially causing harm to their, their self, their, their self, mm-hmm. Maybe it almost look almost like self-injury to their penis or whatever, mm-hmm. but it's actually mm-hmm. just them trying to do something with this erection that they have um, to the other side of the coin where people have somehow managed to teach themselves to masturbate because, you know, once, once you figure it out, it's, you know, it's a, it's a pretty reinforcing behavior and you can mm-hmm. do it over and over again. And so the, the questions tend to be either a, how do I teach this person to masturbate or B, how do I stop them? <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, yeah. There, I mean, there, and there's so many layers and this is like, I think a great example of this thing around like the scope of practice versus scope of competency. So there's uh-huh. like already in my head, I've got like, you know, 35 different questions that I want to ask mm. people when this behavior comes up. Right. And so I'll, I'll, I'll jump into a few of them and maybe we'll get them like jumbled and it'll, they'll come out in the end. But yeah. So again, looking back at what, you know, what have we taught people from the beginning? So a, do they even know that these body parts are private? Do they even know what public and private is? Do they even have access to privacy? So many people that I've consulted with or, you know, had, you know, just people asking me questions is sort of like, well, they're masturbating in the living room or they're masturbating in, in public. And it's like, well, where does this person have privacy? It's like, oh, they don't. We, we have to have 24 hour line of sight, mm-hmm. you know, all the time with this person. It's like, so when are they supposed to masturbate? They don't have a private, a private place. So what can we do to figure out privacy for them? And obviously mm-hmm. depending, you know, I feel like I'm going to, I was looking the other day, I'm going to get a bunch of like mugs that say it depends and give them to all my supervisors. And I saw that. On, <laughs> I think it's the cover photo right now for the BCBAs using the ISCA Facebook. Group. Right. Yeah. 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 And I was just, you know, I just, it speaks to me so much because it's just like, it depends. So, you know, does the person have access to privacy? Yes or no. How can we facilitate privacy? How is privacy facilitated? It depends. Obviously that can be very, very complicated for some people depending on other behaviors that they might engage in, how safe they might be, et cetera. But like, we should at least try and we should try really hard to figure out a way to make that work for a person because privacy is just like, I think along with pleasure, a fundamental human right, like the right to be alone. You know, some people have like never been left alone. Mm -hmm. And that's just like makes me sad. You know, because I think that that's something that, you know, a lot of people need to be able to like recharge is just time and space away from other people. If I didn't have that, I would not be, you know, a good human half the time. Right. So I I think we need to think critically about that again. So yeah, public names of body parts, public and private body parts. Does the person have access to privacy? I also think that, you know, masturbation is a self-reinforcing behavior. It's a fundamental, like, you know, primary reinforcer for most people. And some of the people that that I might consult with or that people listening might have supported in the past might not have a lot of other leisure skills that they really enjoy or want to do or engage in. Or somebody has decided that, you know, they need to be cut off from a certain amount of TV time. And so now they don't have anything else that they want to do. And mm. so their, their leisure options are watching TV, sleeping, or masturbating. I mean, if we look, that might be a lot of people's leisure time choices, <laughs> you know, regardless, right? You got your Netflix, you're sleeping or you're masturbating, you know? And like, why is that so different for the people that we support? So if they don't have something else to be doing, then wh- why can't they masturbate? Mm-hmm. You know, 
what's the problem? So thinking critically about that, obviously, again, there's there's issues around culture and and uh, religion and his, mm-hmm. you know people's personal histories with that, um, and those get embedded and intertwined. And it's it's not you know the people that are working to support a person have a problem with it. So it's like, well, how can we help facilitate that? You know, and people have a right to say like, I'm not comfortable providing so and so with their lube to masturbate. But okay, well then we need to find somebody that works to support them that is, or a way that they can have access to lube that, you know, nobody has to facilitate for them. But that's a right that they have. Which brings me sort of to like lube and and sex mm-hmm. toys. Oh, maybe I'll insert one other thing before we go down that road because I could talk about lube and sex toys for a while. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> but another thing with um, particularly as people get older and they might be more likely to be on a medication is that a lot of medications that people that um, we might support are on are like antipsychotics, antidepressants, anti-anxiety medications. And depending on what the medication is, most of those will have some sort of sexual side effect. What that looks like for an individual person may vary, but even like, you know, if I have depression and, you know, and I go to the doctor and I get a a prescription, not every doctor is saying, you know, this may have an impact on your libido or this may have an impact on your ability to have an orgasm. Mm -hmm. They're not saying that to me um, as a person who can go in there and has strong self-advocacy skills. So the chances that they're saying that to a parent and they're prescribing it to a, like a nonverbal child or somebody who's an adult that doesn't have the ability to to advocate or ask the questions and they're interpreting people as asexual is going to be even lower. Um, So that's like super important, I think, for people to think about and they don't and can sometimes be the key thing, especially if you're like injuring yourself masturbating. Mm -hmm. It could be that that person had been able to masturbate to orgasm successfully for years and then there was a change in their medication and Mm -hmm. now they have anorgasmia, so the inability to um, achieve orgasm and it's side effect of that medication. So they're looking for this reinforcer and they're having an extinction burst. Yeah, 100%. (laughs) And then, you know, they're they're harming themselves. So, and that's because their medication changed. And if you don't know that that's a side effect of medications, because no one said it and you don't have special training, then you don't know. Right. So um, that's something that I see super often. And I've had, you know, a couple of people that do, I do a brief consult and I mention that and they say, Oh my God, I'm going to have to mention this to my physician. And then they get in touch with me again saying, thank you that, you know, we made a medication change and things are better. Are there, are there some, you know, common or well-known medications that you know that have those effects? I mean, anything in the family of like, those like antidepressants, for sure, antipsychotic medications and right. some anti-anxiety medications as wow, well. Wow, which, which really is like yeah, anyone who's sort of institutionalized in our, in our yeah, that we work yeah. with. Yeah, wow. Yeah, totally. And so those are going to, like I said, those are going to, like any side effect of medication, it's going to differ across the specific medication. Sure. But we've also got like lots of things that are, and I, this is again, where I would say like medical consultation. It's not an area that I have like extensive expertise in um, and I would seek somebody outside, but even like I see a lot of like off label prescribing for, for folks that I support, right? Like it's a medication that's meant to help with seizures, but we're prescribing it for some other reason or whatever. And so like, maybe we don't even know about what the side effects of that might be for this person with this profile and, you know, and asking those kinds of questions to the prescribing medical provider, I think is important. Yeah. Super fascinating. And, and I guess, and I, I know we wanted to kind of segue into lube and toys. Mm-hmm. Um, 
maybe uh, this this might be the way is I've also heard of some medications because I mean for for both you know, whether whether it's a, a vagina or a penis there's there's some natural lubrication right mm-hmm. that's sort of kind of created but I've heard that there's definitely some medications that can prevent that as well. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, totally. Like even, so if a person um, like has a vulva and they also have seasonal allergies Mm -hmm. and they take an antihistamine medication, antihistamine, what does it do to, for your allergies? It stops mucus production. What Mm. is vaginal lubrication? Mucus. So people that might not have needed lube all winter, now spring comes and they're given their antihistamine medication right. to stop their allergy reaction. Now all of a sudden they're harming themselves accidentally when masturbating because they used to produce enough natural lubrication, but the antihistamine means that they don't. And so now they need lubrication to be provided. Of course. Yeah. So Wild. that's like an everyday example of like not even something that that's like an over-the-counter Lots of people are popping antihistamines and not realizing that that's the reason why their vaginal lubrication is changing. Wow. Okay. So segue. (laughs) Segue. Yeah. To sex toys. (laughs) Oh, I I know this is, I know this is an area of obviously just from your bio and from that list there that, that you specialize in. I, my first sort of introduction to sex toys in the, in the, uh, in sort of the disability sector was again, years ago before I was kind of, into ABA and whatnot, and where somehow this little uh, kind of spiral coiled book, kind of pocket sized book, ended up on my desk. Um, and I don't know if you're familiar with it, that was put out by some sort of provincial organization and, and sent out to all like the group homes and the residences yeah. and whatnot that had basically ways for folks, you know. I think it was more towards kind of the physical disability. And, and so I had supported a lot of you know, people with like cerebral palsy and, 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 and things like that. And so for folks with CP and folks who are maybe paraplegic or quadriplegic or any of those things, um, how can they, you know, engage in either sexual activity with others or by themselves using all of these, you know, and this is the language I was using at the yeah. time, seemed like really crazy implements, like things that I just didn't even know existed for any human being. Yeah. Pleasurable. I have it. I have it. I that's have right. Yeah. That's what yeah. it's called. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. It's from, um, definitely associated with GF strong, which is in Vancouver. And so they have the, they have a spinal cord rehabilitation center yes. there. And it's one of the few that, that I'm aware of. Um, that's not an area that I, that I work in. So I don't know for sure, but that when people have spinal cord injuries and they go to GF strong, they have a sexual health rehabilitation team that specializes in helping people figure out what their sex life is going to look like after they've suffered a spinal Mm. cord injury, which is like a fabulous resource. And we should have one of those for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities as well. In my opinion, maybe I'll head it up one day. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, carry on. Uh, maybe we can kind of dive in. I, I mean, there's sort of one other piece that I, I thought was really awesome uh, when, you, when, when you and I were kind of having our, our pre-chat a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and it kind of speaks to sort of the idea of going outside of the field to, to improve your confidence. And uh, you know, for the listeners, you go, you go well beyond, um, you know, uh, accessing journals and, and, and go to webinars and workshops from other places um, where you actually uh, have uh, immersed yourself um, right into the, into the, into the sector. I have, I yeah. have. And yeah, so yeah. maybe tell the listeners a little bit of what you're doing there, why you're doing that, yeah. and, and kind of what your whole interest is in, in, in sex toys and lube and that sort of thing. 
For sure. For sure. Yeah. So when I started merging these two fields, I also um, applied and currently work at a sex toy store in Victoria. Um, I don't work there a lot. It's just a couple of nights a week, but it is fantastic. And I just, I did it. I mean, because I was interested and I wanted to, and because it's just really good practice at sexual health education and teaching. I do, you know, if I work there two nights a week for six hours in those 12 hours, I probably do more sexual health education (laughs) than I might do like in a typical work week, just with people that are coming into the store and they're asking questions and I'm figuring things out with them. And it's just like, it just is like beautiful. Like I feel like people don't, (laughs) you know, they think it's sort of like, these classic sort of like triple X, like CD sex toy stores, but like the human interactions that I have there are so meaningful and helping people to find ways to like access pleasure for themselves is just like, brings me so much joy. And also just like, yeah, learning about like, what are the options? How do you help somebody that um, like has challenges with uh, lubrication? How do you help somebody that has, you know, a physical disability that means that they can't um, use a sex toy in the traditional way and just like problem solving that. So, and I've taken that because one thing that I've learned, and again, merging these two fields is that if you don't know about sex toys and that whole industry, and then I've had a number of consultations where that is a recommendation that I've made for people. And if you don't know what to recommend on the sex toy side, then you're again at risk of doing harm. So something as simple as like, you know, recommending that somebody um, has access to say like a dildo. So somebody Mm. with a vagina um, has been inserting something that's unsafe and it Mm. takes like a 20 second, like, peruse through Reddit to find streams of people listing things that they have masturbated with in Mm. their life to show you that like people are going to put things in their body. They're going to put things in and on their body and those things are not going to be safe. So we've got your like electric toothbrushes and your comb handles and your shampoo Mm. bottles and carrots and you know, any people are putting these things in their body. And so I've had a number of consultations where people are putting unsafe things in their body. So someone with a vulva or vagina is putting something in their body and it's unsafe. And so somebody says like, okay, we should get them a sex toy so that at least they're putting something safe into their body, but they buy them a sex toy that's not made out of a safe material. And Mm. now that person has chronic yeast infections. Mm. So if you are just giving them a sex toy that you just like snuck in somewhere and like bought the cheapest (laughs) thing because, you know, oh, whatever, we'll just give this to the person but that sex toy is made out of an unsafe material, you're causing now more harm to that person than you were Mm -hmm. before. So really knowing like, what should you recommend if somebody brings that kind of challenge to me? So I can give you all kinds of recommendations on body safe sex toys that don't have to be expensive. They can be, but they don't have to be. And how can we make that safe for the person? And, and, Mm. And really a lot of those consultations you know, do center around people that are engaging in harmful masturbation. So if we've ruled out things like medical causes, like medications and all of that stuff, then it is looking at like, maybe this person just isn't as, isn't successful at masturbating and maybe they need a tool. There's Mm -hmm. lots of people that need a tool to help masturbate, particularly Mm -hmm. people with vulvas that are learning to stimulate their clitoris. Lots and lots and lots of people need help, need, you know, a vibrator, need something um, to help them achieve an orgasm. 
they can't just do it sort of like, quote unquote, the old fashioned way Mm. with fingers. And even if they could, maybe they still need lubricant. So trying to figure out how we can sort of make masturbation less harmful, which has the side benefit of it feeling better and being more pleasurable. So yeah, there's like a lot there. So another thing is that people think that you have to be 18 to own a sex toy. Obviously, you know, it's a podcast. You may have international listeners. I encourage people to look into their local laws and regulations, depending on where you're listening from. But for me here locally, if you go to like a sex toy store, some of them, and Mm. you see like, you have to be 18 to enter these premises. That has nothing to do with the sex toys that are being sold. And it has everything to do with the fact that those places often also sell pornography, whether that's Mm. magazines or DVDs, or some of the boxes and packaging on some sex toys is sexually explicit. So it may have breasts, vulvas, penises pictured on there. Mm -hmm. Um, But to actually own a sex toy, to physically like have one in your possession, anybody of any age technically could have one. Really? Um, Yeah. And there are like in Vancouver women's wear, if you go there on commercial drive, you'll notice that there is no sign that says 18 plus because they don't sell pornography Mm. and they take everything out of the packages. If it happens to have pornographic packaging, I'm pretty sure they make a strong effort not to purchase things that have that packaging. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and here in Victoria at Island Sexual Health, they have a store attached and they don't sell pornography and Mm. you can go in and you can buy a vibrator, a penis masturbator, a dildo. So there is no age limit. So that's specific to pornography, um, which I think a lot of people don't know. So they think like, oh, I can't, you know, I'm secretly buying my, you know, daughter a sex toy and and she's only, you know, 16. And it's like, that's, that's fine. She can't come into the store to buy it, unfortunately, because we also have, you know, have packaging that has pornography, but yeah, so that, that's something for people to be, I think, aware of that most people think that the age restriction is related to the sex toy and it's not. So yeah. So finding effective, like, um, masturbation aids, um, teaching people to use lubricant, teaching people to use a masturbator. If somebody has a medication side effect, that's making it harder for them to orgasm. Sometimes the addition of a sex toy, that additional stimulation can mean that they can now achieve orgasm. Hmm. So now they can stay on their medication. Cause maybe there's a completely legitimate reason that they need to be on that medication mm-hmm. and it can't be modified because you know, you found that spot where that person's quality of life is significant improved. We don't want that person to be depressed clearly. Um, but we do want that person to not harm themselves when they're masturbating. So if we add lube and a penis masturbator, then you can probably be closer to achieving an orgasm. Hmm. And I think people think about sex toys often. So like the penis masturbators as like, Oh, it just looks like a disembodied vulva and you know, things like fleshlights and, you know, pardon the language of pocket pussy. And and it's just, you know, people think of them as these like crude things, Mm -hmm. but there's tons that don't look anything like a body. And so you can get one that just looks, it's just like a piece of like squishy silicone material and it doesn't look like a vulva at all. And then same with dildos, right? Yes, there are some that look phallic, that look like a penis, but there's plenty that don't look like a penis at all. Um, And so you don't have to buy something that looks like a disembodied body part. And there's plenty of options that I would be happy to show, that I'd be happy to show you. Yeah. Yeah. And so I guess kind of related to that, when you talk about masturbation and how do we teach masturbation and the, Mm. these laws around pornography and stuff and this comes up quite frequently on like uh, Facebook um, groups and stuff is there's a few 
uh, masturbation instructional videos yeah. uh, that people are probably have heard about um, if they haven't seen them. Um, call from Dave Hinsberger and his group at Diversity Press is where they're from in based in Toronto, and they do great work. But those videos feature real people masturbating. There's Handmade Love, which is the mm-hmm. one for the person with the penis, and then Fingertips, which is the one for the person with the vulva. Mm-hmm. Um, but they show a real person naked masturbating, and so. You can't show that to a person who's under the age of 18 because right. that's technically pornographic material. So it that's the only sort of like instructional video out there in terms yep. of like, you know, what we know is like a video model for um, people that we know that that's an effective teaching strategy for people that are autistic, but you can't show that to somebody who's under the age of 18, not as a professional and not as a parent either, right? So um, facilitating or providing access to pornography is something that is going to be legally not okay. Mm. So we need to think of other ways. And so one thing that I you know, have spent some time on is developing video models that show a penis and, you know, I've bought a dildo and I've, you know, gotten a masturbator and lubricant and I make a video model showing what to do using this fake penis. Mm. At least there's like something that we can show people in order to help them learn to masturbate. And for the most part, like most people figure out how to masturbate on their own. You know, they will figure out a way that works for them. And that might look different than the way that somebody else masturbates, but whatever, everybody does it differently. Um, And so very rarely do we have to like physically teach masturbation. And especially if we start to uh, like eliminate some of those other variables, if like masturbation is harmful, then usually people will sort of figure it out without having to be taught. Mm -hmm. And so also staying away from this idea of like, oh, we're going to have to use hand over hand teaching somebody, right? Because like that does not send the right message about body boundaries and privacy, but you might have to find somebody that's comfortable doing like a video model or a live model on a dildo being like, this is what you do Mm -hmm. or a model of a vulva. So I have one of those as well. I'm just kind of showing people what it is that you need to do. I have video models of like how to wash a sex toy before and after use, how to wash a vibrator, how to, how to turn a penis masturbator inside out and wash it. People can contact me for consultation if they want access to some of those things. But yeah, so like there's ways to do it, but not everybody has, you know, those teaching materials. Yeah, no, um, for sure. Around, um, and I do. So <laughs> I never yeah. would have thought of, of of using a sex toy to kind of model model some of those skills. That's really yeah. that's ingenious. Yeah. 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 Like I've got one. It's like meant it was sold commercially as a penis masturbator, but it looks like a vulva. It's one of those disembodied body part right. ones. And so I've just I bought that as a teaching model because then it looks like a real vulva. Cause we know that like some of the folks that we support might need those like concrete examples that look like the real thing, right? This like classic sort of urban myth of like, Oh, put a condom on a banana. And then somebody puts a condom on a banana and sets it at the bedside table and then ends up with an STI because they're like, well, I, I put the condom on the banana. Mm-hmm, <laughs> I did mm-hmm. the thing. It's like some people need those models, right? Like a, doing it on a drawing or talking yep. about it or showing in a picture isn't good enough. So I just have the teaching materials. It's like, this looks like the real thing, but it's not. So, yeah. Amazing. And so did you find that people are, are open to, to doing that teaching themselves or do you find that you're doing it more often? 
Um, I mean, I, I will very rarely do it myself because I think that like having a random stranger come in and tell you what to do also sends like a different message. So I will usually like, I do more coaching of other people who are in that person's life who might be a more appropriate person to do that with, whether that's a parent or, you know, somebody who works in like a group home or whatever with them. And occasionally like actually like going through that with an actual learner who's going to be the, the person that's learning the skill. Yeah. So there's lots of things to sort of consider and consents to be put in place and like all of that sort of stuff. Right. Yeah. And there are like, we've got the, like the, um, the other legal gray area around, and we were kind of talking about this in our pre-chat of some um, organizations that do, you know, like sex surrogacy and places like Australia, Israel has a like legalized sort of like sex surrogate work as well. Um, And, you know, sex work in Canada is in this sort of like, there's lots of questions about like, what is legal? There's no, like, there's limited prosecution of, of sex work in, in, you know, in some it's complicated, but you know, it's a bit of a legal gray area. And there are some people that might do like, you know, sensual touch and those sorts of things for people with physical disabilities, but maybe they won't do that with a person with a developmental disability because Mm. there's questions around capacity to consent. Mm. Um, and so accessing those type of things or accessing sex work can be challenging. It can be challenging if we're a person who's facilitating it, right? So we're a third party, mm-hmm. you know, I'm pro-sex work, pro-positive um, in terms of people accessing and, and using sex workers. Um, and we just need to sometimes just do teaching around like, what does that look like to make that safe for a person? If that's something that they're like have stated that they want to do. So what are the steps that you can do so that you're safe? And what are the steps that we can do to make sure that the sex worker is safe in that situation? Mm, I hear often people being like, oh, well, couldn't they just hire a sex worker? And it's like, well, sex workers aren't there to just have sex with whomever. Mm -hmm. That's a job that they're choosing to do. They get to decide who they work with and who they don't, just like I get to decide who I work with and Mm -hmm. who I don't. Um, So, yeah. So, and I suppose this, this is, 18 and over for sex workers. Yeah. 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 Well, just, uh, and the, like looking at age of consent and, and all of those things um, as well, just in right. terms of, yeah. Yeah. Is that a thing that like, how do people, how do people access that sort of <laughs> like sex surrogacy? I mean, I mean, sex surrogacy is, is basically, you know, a, it just, it sounds like a, a nice way of saying getting a sex worker into your home. Yeah. 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 I mean, there's, and there's like an organization in like there's organizations in Australia where that's like Australia, like legal, right. right? Yeah. So like those are agencies that that's like a service that they provide and it gotcha. can adver- they can advertise, et cetera, that this is what they're doing. Whereas, you know, if people are hiring sex workers in Canada, they might be finding um, them on, you know, online. Um, there's different sort of resources for right. people to find sex workers online. There's different like escort agencies and things like that. Um, that might be, um, just doing like kind of like a companionship thing. Um, and so figuring out like what that person wants to do in terms of access mm-hmm. and what might be, uh, you know, a safer place to, to point them in order to be able to, to and so is that something that you would provide? I obviously, obviously you're not doing the, the direct mm-hmm. work, but is that something yeah. you're, you, you would provide consultation on? Like to so sort of say, you know, if, if you're going to go that route, here's the questions you want to ask. 
Yeah. I mean, it's certainly something that I wouldn't consider for myself right now, like an area of expertise. And I have very few clients that have ever come to me in that position, but I have had a few. And in those times, I've just worked with local sex workers that Mm -hmm. I know to try to facilitate, like I said, what would this process look like in terms of how does that person that's like choosing to use sex work access mm-hmm. that in a way that's safe and how do we make sure that the that the sex workers uh remain safe and they're making a decision that they're comfortable with as yeah, well yeah. and wow. sort of both those. so uh, like modeling that i that that's not an area of expertise for me but when i have had those sort of requests or consultations i've sort of like i've just linked those people with a third party like the, the, here's a person that i know that might be able to help you with that so yeah oh, that's awesome just so much, so many, so like so many different areas that you kind <laughs> yeah. of go in, and it's like so many conversations. I don't know that I thought I'd, I'd ever have, but I think I think they're, I think it's great that we're able to kind of talk about a lot of this stuff a lot more freely than we were able to maybe five or ten years yeah, ago. Yeah, definitely. I think that's, definitely. That's that's For pretty sure. pretty awesome. Um, mm-hmm. We are. Uh, I didn't really set a time per se. I feel like we could <laughs> just talk about this for hours on end. Uh, Indeed. Like I said, there's just so many different realms, but. Most of these have been going about an hour and a half, so maybe we can look at uh, look at yeah. kind of wrapping it up a bit. What um, I'm just wondering if there's sort of any anything else that um, uh, you know would be good to sort of share with listeners, particularly kind of you know BCBAs who are are kind of looking to kind of do more here, because I think mm-hmm. I, I often see online in, in these groups, and I know even just talking about sort of you know therapy recommendations in general on Facebook is sketchy, and there's yeah. Like, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, ethics around that. I, I, I think it's great when a moderator, a moderator comes in and says, hey, you shouldn't be asking these kinds of questions. But it gets really scary when the questions are sexual and, and people just start making sort of random kind of suggestions. Um, and so what are some maybe some good sort of initial steps for, you know, uh, behavior analysts to kind of um, maybe don't want to go the whole route of getting certified, um, although I think that's a great idea uh, to kind of expand themselves a bit. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, yeah, the the searching for consultation on Facebook is sort of one of those things that, I mean, not having access to behavior or like not having access to information shapes all kinds of <laughs> behavior, right? So where you're, get, you're getting the reinforcement that you're looking for in terms of like a brief answer to your question, but is it is it really the, you know, the best answer and, and ethical mm-hmm. doing some of those things? So I do think that... Um, looking at something like reaching out to join the sexual behavior research and practice SIG. I mean, even if you're not formally joining us, although we, you know, encourage people to, um, you know, run for positions on the board, um, get involved, you know, come to our meetings with virtual uh, ABAI in, in the spring, we'll mm-hmm. be, we'll be hosting a number of events there um, and just contacting some of that information. Um, that's a good place. I, I know it's hard when you, you know, we only have so much money as professionals to spend on, on CEUs yeah. or just personally or professionally, whether that's, you know, supported at a place we might work or not, we're doing it on our own. And there's so many things. And, and again, this is sort of why, you know, specializing in sexual health education, because I was just like exhausted from trying to be a jack of all trades mm-hmm. and, you know, supporting autism intervention. And so there's so many things that you want to like get good at, but even if you just, you know, try to expand your scope by, you know, one CEU that you do make it something related to sexual health or relationship education in terms of, in terms of CEUs, whether that's something that you've 
do at uh, BC ABBA. I mean, I've presented there every year for the last three years or so, something related to this field. Um, so for local BC listeners, and uh, I plan to submit a presentation about sex toys for the next BC ABBA. So if you're a local awesome. BC listener, you could sign up for that for September. But so I think that's a good first step. And honestly, like just getting generally comfortable with the topic of sexuality, even if it's not related to disability at all, like it's like this podcast, you've made it this far, you're listening, but look <laughs> at other sexual health like podcasts and just put it on in the car and just hearing people talking about a topic that you didn't think that you would encounter ever might just like make you feel more comfortable with bringing that up with a family, right? That first conversation of like, I think it might be important to like add penis to the, to the vocabulary for their receptive identification of body parts. Could you work on that at home during bath time is like a super awkward conversation if you've never said penis in a professional context. Mm -hmm. So just like, you know, practicing getting comfortable with the topic broadly can be like a huge first step for some people. So if you just look up sex and podcasts, there's, there's plenty out there. And I think any of those would do well on the sexual behavior research and practice SIG. We have a, a podcast uh, listing resource there and we've posted it on our Facebook oh, perfect. as well. So some, some different ones um, that people like if there's, yeah, like following different um, like sex positive, like Instagram accounts, I'll do like a little shout out to one um, mm-hmm. sex positive families. Cool. Um, and it's just really brief. Um, her name is Melissa Carnegie Pinter or Pinter Carnegie. I apologize to them. And, but they just put up like really good short things about, you know, how to work on consent, how to like talk about body parts, tips for talking about things like pornography and, and all of that sort of stuff. So just like having that come up on your Instagram feed, like the word, you know, vulva or mm-hmm. pictures of, you know, stylized pictures of vulva just like brings a level of comfort. And so little things like that, that, that doesn't mean you're going to have a scope of, of practice or a scope of competence in the area, but it, it gets you more comfortable. So I think that's like an actionable item for a lot of folks, like signing up for a you know, a CEU or something like that might not be achievable for people right now, but downloading a podcast and listening to it the next time you're stuck in Vancouver traffic is doable. We, uh, uh, this is a CEU podcast. And so Ah. we're going to have um, secret words uh, through the podcast. And so definitely penis and vulva will be in there. What should, what should the third one be? (laughs) What should the third one be? I'm going to give a shout out to the clitoris. If you could, clitoris clitoris doesn't get nearly enough attention so if perfect you could, if you could perfect. add clitoris that would be great that's awesome so i want everybody who's listening right now to say penis vulva and clitoris out loud the third secret word is clitoris so you get your ceu yes <laughs> so that would be awesome <laughs> Well, that's super cool. So you've shared so many great resources and I just want to let folks know that I'm going to have detailed show notes that will have links and names and all this stuff. I've, I've, I've taken uh, copious notes uh, as you've been speaking and I'll make sure all that stuff is going to be out there. Uh, and uh, Landa, this was just so awesome. Uh, we're, I think we're, we're so lucky to, to have you uh, locally, but also I think with, whether you've noticed or not, you've become a big name yourself um, <laughs> um, uh, in, in this field um, and in this area. And I, and I think that's just so awesome. 
and so awesome that this was a dream of yours from childhood um, yeah. that, you're, that you're able to sort of bring back and, and link up with ABA. I think it's I think it's so fantastic when folks have passions in other areas and are able to connect it to ABA and, and really make those really kind of cool specializations. So thanks again for being on the show. So awesome. We'll, we'll definitely bring it back and talk about 35 other things um, <laughs> another yeah, time. Part, part two, part 35. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, sure. exactly. And we need more secret words, right? That people yes. can say. So, yes, I've got um, so many. So that'll be awesome. So, so cool. Thanks a lot for being here. Thank you.